Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. And surprise, surprise, we have to welcome back Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants. Morning. Good, good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. It's actually quite nice to be back again. I mean, it's great to go away, but part of the fun of going away is getting home. I agree. And so I'm happy to be home again uh, after a very adventurous and exciting uh, about five and a half, six weeks. It's I've been, been ages. Yeah, it's been ages I've been away. Um, although I could have lived with a little less cold weather to hit me as soon as I got home because <laughs> uh, the Canary Islands were stinking hot right. uh, and France was quite warm. In fact, we had 35 degrees in Normandy a couple of days. Good heavens. So it was, for, for Normandy, surprisingly hot. Um, and so I got suntanned and got used to the warm weather and, you know, all that sort of stuff and bam, did I hit it when I got back <laughs> home. So... Um, yeah, so the body hasn't adjusted yet, but we'll be fine in due course. Oh, yes. We're having a proper winter this year. It looks like it, although we haven't had the rain, I believe. No, we haven't. Yeah. Very dry. Yeah, because I got home and I uh, went up to the nursery the first day, first full day after I got back. Um, and, of course, I turned off the sprinkler systems while I was away. Yeah, And, uh, I mean, nothing was wilting or anything, but the pots were dry. Yeah. And uh, so I actually had to do watering in the middle of June, which is or at the end of June, which is really ridiculous. Yes. No, it so, has been very dry. Yeah. So, uh, anyhow, hopefully we'll get some decent rains uh, over the next few weeks, but we're certainly getting the cold. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all part of it. Mm. Of course it is. Of course it is. And we also have to say a very good morning to Graham Sargents from Silky's Rose Farm in Clombenane. Morning, Graham. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, Stephen, and everybody out there in the freezing. <laughs> oh, they'll all be tucked up in bed. They're, they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a record um, minus eight at our place on Tuesday. Minus so, eight? Yes, got down to that. Well, and we were walking across the, the puddles quite safely, you know, it was that thick, the yeah. ice. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it, um, I think at our place we've averaged, we, we've got over 70, uh, had over 70 frosts this year already. Goodness gracious, and, that's a lot of frosts. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an exceptional year. Mm. Yeah, we may, maybe get one of these once in every 25 years. Yep. Mm. Mm, yeah, well, I was, I was just telling Stephen, poor old Kyneton's been in a similar situation to you. They've mm-hmm. had so many yeah. frosts, really mm. heavy frosts. Mm. Oh, well, I hope those who'd planted tropical-esque borders uh, <laughs> <laughs> are not too disappointed this year. I uh, think they'll suddenly be doing a replanting of something uh, quite different. Yeah, well, I think there's a good possibility I'll lose one or two of the things I've planted that are sort of... Uh, what do the Americans call it? Zonal denial. Because oh, right. in, in America, everything is climate zoned. Mm. Yes. And so if they're trying to grow things that really aren't um, appropriate for their zone, they say they're in zonal denial, <laughs> which I think is a great term. I wish we had zonal denial here. Uh, and I've been in that phase for years. So I plant lots of stuff I know I shouldn't really plant. But it's surprising if you plant things that are more tender, if you can get them through their first year or two, it's often surprising how... They don't necessarily adjust, but they get enough woody tissue in them that the frost takes the top off them, but they will shoot away again from lower down. Um, I've had some plants that I've planted two or three times and lost them in the first winter, but then I get one in and it gets through that first winter. Mm. 
makes it through the second winter, and then after that, although it gets knocked, it comes back again. So yep. the plant seems quite um, quite sound after that. So uh, the big trick, of course, is not to prune anything until after the frosts are over so that you don't allow the cold to get in further. Exactly. The next frost. Yep. So I've been looking at lots of black plants around the garden the last week since I've been home. And thinking, oh, well, black's the new green, obviously, <laughs> so I'll just have to live with that until the spring. Of but course. Anyhow, that's what, all right. What, yes, exactly. What's, what's your experience, Stephen, with, with lemon trees, a lemon tree that's, that's been burnt? Well, it's funny because my, my citrus trees, uh, they get a very little bit of top damage now, but yeah. because they're so big... Um, they don't get really badly burnt. So, again, they've got really beyond having to worry too much about. I mean, we got a corker frost last year, which burnt the top off my kaffir lime tree, but only the, you know, sort of six inches of growth on the top. So it was just a matter of going over it and cleaning it up later in the year. But, again, I still didn't touch them until the spring came on. Okay. Um, Anything that's been frosted, I think it's better to leave it alone, learn to live with the slightly unattractive look, um, and wait till that spring season hits in and you feel confident there's no more frost. I mean, I try and do it as quickly as I can in the spring Mm. uh, and get them off the plant as quickly as I can. But I always try and leave it till I'm fairly certain we won't get any more frost. Um, and then, you know, if something suffered from, from frost damage during the winter, it's a good idea to give it a good feed in the spring, probably get some seaweed on it too to mm. sort of give it that sense of um, uh, of a tonic as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you know, give everything a bit of a kind treatment uh, mm. after the cold is over. But it's surprising. I mean, I do really well with citrus trees in our garden at Macedon now, and although mm-hmm. I'm a little bit sheltered from the worst of the frost because I've got big trees sort of around me that break it up a bit, we still get pretty hefty frosts, you know, we get crispy lawns and 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 scrunchy driveways and, and ice on the ponds and things, so we still get pretty decent frost. Yeah. Um, but, you know, most of my stuff is now beyond worrying about it. But that was more luck than good management because when you think about it, most of my citrus trees went in not long after that long drought cycle set right. in. Yeah. And we didn't get the cold winters for mm. several no, winters. They were actually true. quite mild. Yeah. And uh, so my citrus trees, of course, got quite large by that and... You know, I know a fair few people who grow citrus trees who say that you need to keep them down to a certain height. I actually like mine to stay quite tall because the higher they are, the more above the frost they are because the frost settles on ground level. So I have the sense that, you know, if I have to pick my lemons with a ladder or whatever, it's probably safer than keeping my lemon tree down to Mm. a metre and a half. Mm. So I allow them to have a bit of a head and get Mm. them up a bit. Mm. Um, And I don't thin them or do anything to them until the warmer weather sets in. Mm. And they're good. Um, I was at Ascot Vale um, last weekend to, at, at a poultry show, and it starts early, so you know I was there about six o'clock, and I thought, "Oh, look at Ascot Vale here! It's, they've had a frost, yeah. like it was really quite a frost." Yes. Yeah. And you know I worked in Ascot Vale for about seven years, and it's the first time I've seen the frost down in that area. Okay. And there's a lot of people around with a lot of citrus trees, yeah. isn't there? There's a heap of citrus oh, trees. Yeah. In, oh yeah. And, and a lot of them are scruffy. I mean, I was yeah. talking to a lady yesterday who's uh, had a potted lemon, I think it was, that got badly knocked, and I just said, "Well, look, leave it." Perhaps give it some seaweed, but you can't feed it, you can't prune it, you can't mm. do anything. Just leave it um, and see where it shoots from in the spring, which is important, mm-hmm. um, and prune back to that. Mm. Um, the tree will soon show you, you know, what bits of it are still alive. Mm. And, uh, yes, and, of course, in a pot, things are up out of the ground, so they suffer from cold even more than mm. if they're in the ground because the frost sits on the surface. So in a pot. You can actually have the sides of the pot freeze and what have you too, mm. so the, mm. the whole root ball can get can quite get cold. Really, yes. uh, yeah. And so it can cause more damage that way. Uh, but, you know, have, looking at it from the other perspective, of course, frost is a good thing. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, it does knock around our frost tender plants, obviously, mm. but it also knocks out lots of bugs and wogs and pests yep. and things mm. in the garden. Mm. Um, it crumbles soil, um, yes. so it's it's good for soil structure. Um, there's you know there's a lot of positives, and of course there's a lot of plants that actually like a winter chill. Yes. So, you know, your peonies will flower better after a cold winter. Mm, mm. Uh, Definitely. You know, a lot of your bulbs will do particularly well uh, after a cold winter. Uh, so, you know, it's part of the reason we live in southern Australia, I reckon. Why would you live in Queensland where it's perfect one day and beautiful the next or whatever they say? <laughs> um, uh, having said that, they get cyclones. Yes. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think the, the cold, as much as it can be something we grumble about, um, mm. has lots of positives too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it doesn't do roses any real harm to have lots of decent frost through the winter. Mm. No, I looking at the roses and watching what we've got you know, in stock in now, there's about um, 7,000 of them, and watching the, the small buds, and I thought, you little, you little blighters, you just don't mind this at all. No, no, they'll yeah. just sit through it and they'll, yeah. they'll be fine. They'll yeah. be fine. Mm. Yeah, so there we go. So, Graham, um, talking of roses, you've got some pruning days coming, coming up. Because now's the time to start demonstrating pruning. Yes. Yes. yes we've got uh, a pruning day next weekend uh, on, um, I think it's a Sunday. Oh, um, Graham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they ring the nursery, we, we can give them the exact times. Yep. And um, then we've got another one uh, two, two weeks after that. Okay. Um, there, but there are pr- pruning demonstrations, of course, around in Melbourne. Mm. Um, quite a few... Um, um, yeah, the Rose Society crops. normally do, do them, don't they? Yeah. Different nurseries. Yes, they haven't sent me any information. I was going to ask year. you whether you've got any. Oh, no, well, there, there no. is a plea. Send in mm. the information, Rose Absolutely. Society. We need mm. to know where the pruning demos are. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or, or actually check that out. They may not be doing, uh, having them so prolifically. Yeah, because they did them a lot, didn't they, one stage? Mm, you had mm. them almost every weekend at some nursery oh, or that's right. garden centre somewhere. That's mm. right. Uh, maybe their members just aren't doing it so mm. much now. Yep. Graham could be right. I might have to check mm. out their website and see what I can find out. But, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really surprised I haven't heard from yeah, them Yeah, because so they far. normally were pretty good about that. That's right, they? yeah. 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 Mm. Anyway, while we're talking uh, um, pruning, uh, I'm going to be talking grafting. Ah, uh, Werribee Park Heritage Orchard is having its Heritage Fruit Tree Grafting Day coming up. This is specifically for apples, pears, cherries and plums. Uh, it's taking place on Sunday the 16th of July, so that's next Sunday, 10am through till 3pm. It's being held down at Werribee Park Homestead. You enter via Gate 5 K Road in Werribee. Now, it's free entry. Uh Trees can be grafted to order from $15 and Scion is available for $3 each. Uh, now, as well as the, um, the demonstrations of uh, uh, grafting, they're going to have experts on hand to give you a hand uh, and they'll, they can also help you with things like espalier trees, growing uh, miniature trees in pots or extending your harvest. Now... Um, There'll be uh, other growers. We'll also have stalls on the day. And the CWA will be keeping everyone fed with hearty fare and hot drinks. And, of course, the Shadowfax Winery is right next door. Uh, Now, there's also going to be orchard tours and a chance to look around the amazing market garden run by the local Karen Burmese community. So, as I said, next Sunday, 10 through till 3, free entry and uh, then you can just uh, order your grafted trees or have a go yourself or get some scion wood to take home. Um, but, uh, yes, 
excellent uh, day out there if you really want to learn a little bit more about grafting of heritage fruit trees. Now, also coming up uh, in two weeks' time, this is Saturday and Sunday, 22nd, 23rd of July, uh, the uh, growing friends down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens have got their next plant sale. Um, as I said, the dates are 22nd, 23rd, 10 a.m. through to 4 p.m. on both days. The location, of course, is Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria at Cranbourne. They'll have a wide range of Australian plants in tubes and larger pots for sale. Um, prices from $3. So a great opportunity to purchase some Australian native plants, support the garden and have a look around the garden while you're down there. Now, these next two notices are for the diary. Uh, they're both coming up on Saturday the 5th of August and they're both being run by Friends of Burnley Gardens. Uh, one's taking place in the morning, one's taking place uh, a little later in the afternoon. So the first one is, again, fruit tree pruning, and this will be with Chris England, and this will be learning how to prune different types of fruit trees, apples, pears, peaches, nectarines, plums, and citrus. Uh, learn to keep trees healthy and to a workable height and to recognise the different types of growth and prune for maximum fruit. Now, it's a hands-on workshop with a small group. Uh, it's for beginners or as a refresher for experienced pruners, and Chris will demonstrate pruning techniques in the Burnley Gardens Orchard and then you'll have a go under his watchful eye. Now, uh, the time uh, for Saturday the 5th of August is 10am through to 1pm. Cost, uh, if you're members of the Friends Group, $50. Non-members, $65. Now, this does include morning tea. Uh, BYO Clean Secateurs. All plant material will be supplied and you do need to wear closed shoes. Now, the venue, of course, is Burnley Campus, 500 Yarra Boulevard there in Richmond. Bookings are essential. Uh, you can book at friends.burnley at gmail.com or you can telephone 9035-6815. That's 9035-6815. Now, in the afternoon, uh, they're running um, a special seminar all about the world of truffles with uh, Noel Fitzpatrick. Now, I know um, I've actually been to a talk that Noel gave a couple of years ago down at Burnley. Um, he is a, a truffle consultant and farmer, as well as being a Burnley graduate. Now, uh, the seminar will cover all aspects of truffle growing, including choosing the right site, soil type, host tree and truffle life cycle. There will also be a discussion and demonstration of truffle cooking techniques with truffle devotee Susan Burns. Uh, and the seminar will conclude with afternoon tea and truffle tasting. And you may also purchase fresh truffles at a discount on the day. Now, as I mentioned, it's Saturday the 5th of August. Uh, it'll take place in the hall at Burnley Campus, 3 o'clock through till 6 o'clock. So it's a three-hour seminar. Cost, members of the Friends Group, 65 Visitors, $80. And parking, of course, is available in the boulevard. Again, bookings are essential. And those same booking details, friends.burnley at gmail.com or phone 9035-6815. Okay. Well, 
<coughs> where do we go from here? <laughs> well, I know where you're going from here. Oh, really? You're, you're heading off to Madagascar oh, at the end yes. of the year. I am. I mean, this is obsessive behaviour on my behalf. I'm actually doing two <laughs> tours this year. I can't pin him down, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, two tours this year. I'm only doing one next year, but uh, I have to say uh, Australian Studying Broad, the company I work with, is already talking about 2019, so I've got to start making decisions about that now. Okay. Uh, it's... Oh, you have to think so far ahead with all these things. Well, I would imagine because you're doing a new tour next year yeah. with them that they would want you to run that for two yeah, consecutive well, that's, years. Yeah, well, that's possibly the case. But anyow, we've got to, I've got to discuss that with uh, uh, somebody else in my life who comes along on these tours and decide how we're going to go the following year. But anyhow, so, yes, yeah, so we've finished one tour. I'm moving on to another tour in, in October. So we've got the Madagascan tour coming up. And I have to say we did have it filled, uh, but a couple have pulled out due to health issues, which is rather sad. Uh, they're going to miss a great tour, unfortunately. They certainly are. So we've got space for two more people on the Madagascan tour. It, it leaves in, I think, the 10th of October. Uh, so if you are thinking of going, you need to get moving fairly quickly. Apart from anything else, uh, you have to have your passport sent off for visa stamping in Sydney and it takes eight, eight to ten days to get your passport back. And So there's things to do in the meantime. So if somebody has, uh, well, even if you've never thought about wanting to go to Madagascar but suddenly having spoken about it, it sounds like a place you might like to go, um, please get in touch with Australian Studying Abroad. We like to fill this tour because it's limited to 16 people and so there's not a lot of meat in it, unfortunately. So if we don't fill the tour, uh, it'll still go. I mean, it'll go ahead with 14. There's no no way about that it won't. But nonetheless, uh, if the tour company's actually going to make a profit on this one, uh, we do need two more people to fill out the tour. Um, it's exciting. Well, you've been. Oh, and you know what the place is like. It's, it's a amazing. Really, it's a really amazing country. And really, it's not somewhere – I know you've been there on your own, but it's not somewhere that the average person oh. would really be able to deal with, uh, let alone to get around yeah. and see all that there is to see. Oh, well, when I did it the first time, which was in the – late 1990s, uh, we allocated five weeks to tour in Madagascar because we knew that it was going to be a lot of effort to get around. Um, and we ended up having to hire we, – we got – to Madagascar, we went to the capital. We went to a, we found a tour company in the capital, just walking down the street. Walked in, talked about it, um, uh, worked out that we needed a driver and a car to do most of the things. So we had to have a four wheel drive and a driver. The driver cost us next to nothing, but the four wheel drive cost us a lot. Yes. Uh, and there were a couple of internal flights and lots of other things that had to be done. Uh, apart from the fact that we wasted about three days organising the tour when we got there, and you can probably these days with the internet circumvent a lot of that stuff but nonetheless it was probably the most expensive tour that Craig and I've ever done um, as individuals mm. because there's so much infrastructure you've got to build into it if you're going to get around Yes, uh, and you do need to allocate a lot of time if you're going to do it so to do it with a tour company that has the tour already set up it's going to show you the highlights of the country so that you'll see baobab trees um, spiny thicket um, uh, singi the, the limestone rock formations that are uh, renowned in Madagascar lemurs, chameleons, all of the other things that you need to see in the country. To do it with a guided tour is just the only way to go, really. Well, you really have to have a local guide. Well, you do. You yeah. do. You and really in fact, do. you have to have a local guide and you also have to pay for guides whenever you go into any of the national parks and things because you've got to use the local people because it's employment for them. So there's all this different infrastructure that's built into a tour uh, that you have to deal with. So if you're doing it on your own, I remember when Craig and I were doing it, you never knew how much to tip the guides. And, you know, it was, it was always a, a, a minefield of things. 
things. You either overdid it or underdid it or uh, forgot to do it or, yes. or whatever, and you're always frightened that you were going to muck up. Yep. Um, whereas on a tour like this, uh, the company we work through in Madagascar deals with all the, uh, the guide tips and all of those things. So you don't have to think about anything other than having a good time. Mm. Um, but you do have to be, well, not overly fit, but you do have to be resilient. Um, so certainly wouldn't suggest somebody comes if they have really bad back problems, for instance, sake, because you're bouncing around in four-wheel drives a lot and things like that. And you do have to be able to not climb up mountains, but, you know, do some serious walking in reasonably warm climate. Mm. Um, but it is a remarkable country, and, and I would love to see two more people book in to come along to Madagascar with me this year to fill the tour. Uh, I can guarantee lots of animal sightings, um, and you will see things and places that you never even imagined existed. Absolutely. So it really is an incredible country. So, um, uh, yeah, so if anybody's thinking about it, you'll have to move reasonably quickly considering that, you know, we're into July now and the tour leaves at the early part of October. Um, so you need to get your, your act together. But it would be really nice if I could fill the tour. Um, and we do have an awful lot of fun. So, mm. you know, please think about it. Mm. Uh, get in touch with Australian Studying Abroad. Uh, you could go into my website, the uh, in the tour section of my website, there's all the information and it can lead you back to the company if you want to go that way and you can't remember the name of the company. All you have to do is Google Stephen Ryan and you'll find it. Um, so, um, yeah, think about it because it's a great, great place to go and it has its political problems and its environmental problems and all those sorts of things that most third world countries have. Um so, you know, things are not getting better in lots of ways. I mean, the tourist infrastructure is getting better. But, you know, if you don't see it now, God knows whether you'll ever get to see it. Cause That's right. it's a very sad sort of place from that respect. Yes. But going and seeing it means that you're putting money into the local economy. You're helping people over there. Um, so, in a sense, you can get a, a warm feeling about what you're putting back as well as what you're getting out. Absolutely. So I think it's a fabulous trip. So, anyhow, I need two people, please. Yep, yep. <laughs> And having said you, you do need a certain amount of resilience, um, you also – you do stay in fabulous accommodation. Oh, actually, uh, I have to say, Pam, I'm sorry to say this, but the accommodation since it's you and I went – since, yes. <laughs> um, oh, well. <laughs> I really needed the resilience. <laughs> yeah, yes, you certainly did. But, no, the accommodation in most places – I mean, uh, I would say the worst accommodation we have over there now is in Ranamafana Park, and it's probably – what we would have considered almost the best accommodation we had when we did the trip. So right. that gives you some sort of sense of how that sort of thing has changed. I mean, a couple of the um, lodges we stay in near the national parks, like at Isalu um, uh, and um, uh, Marin, etc., they are just stunning. Mm. I mean, beautiful buildings, great beds, uh, you know, just the best accommodation hot and cold running water, <laughs> Wow! <laughs> which was something we didn't always get when we went. Um, a lot of the play, uh, some of them even have air conditioning and things in good the heavens. rooms now. So, yes. you know, so it, the accommodation is good. Uh, the meals on ge in general are quite good. Um, and in fact, the couple of meals we have in Tanner in the capital uh, at some high-end restaurants are stunning. Mm. Uh, we still go to Villa Vanille. Yes, uh, but which is a, so much fun. Oh, it is. It's great fun. But there's another restaurant there we've picked up on now too, which has fabulous cuisine. So we have a, a beginning of the tour fantastic meal in Tanner and we have an end of the tour fantastic meal in Tanner. Terrific. Uh, so, yeah, so it, it gives you everything. I mean... We see local people working and making spades. We go to an aluminium smelting place to see them make aluminium pots and pans. Uh, 
So we see a lot of how people are working and, and living as well. So you, you, you see all of it. Yes. So it's a great trip. Fantastic. So if you're an, if you're an anthropologist, an entomologist, uh, a biologist, uh, uh, you name it, uh, it's, there's something there for everybody. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yep. yes, you, if you study moths, sand, lemurs, birds. I don't care, birds, you name it, foliage, uh, it's all there to look at. Sure is. So, and thank you for letting me talk about it. No, so. no. Yeah, so there we go. All right, now, okay, where okay. do we go next? Well, I think it's high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we have uh, Stephen Ryan and Graham Sargent in the studio. So we can talk just about anything, and I uh, think so. including roses. Yes, well, so do especially give us a call. roses, I would have said. <laughs> especially roses. Yes. <laughs> so that number is 94190155, 94190155. Just before we move on to your plants, yeah. Stephen, um, I do also have to, again, say a huge thank you to all our listeners oh. for supporting us during throughout the Radiothon um, we have got a, a, a running uh, total at the moment of 11,000, thanks mm. to all our very generous supporters out there. But uh, the station has set us a target of 13,500, so... Uh, yeah, so we're still short. And we still have plenty of product left, particularly things like books and vouchers. We mm. have a little bit of um, other gardening product left as well. So uh, if you didn't get around to uh, supporting the gardening show and the Radiothon this year, there's still plenty of time if you just ring during office hours during the week and um, the staff can tell you just what we have uh, still available and try and Good. tempt you with some – or just pop into the station and you can have a look through all the remaining yeah, books. Yeah. We've and, got and wonderful some books. Money in. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, And if you did make a pledge and you haven't uh, sent in that pledge money yet, please do so because, of course, the, uh, the station needs to uh, get all that money in mm. so that they can start planning to meet our running costs for the next 12 months. So, yep. um, yes, but a big thank you to everybody there. Okay, Good. winter sweet time. Yes, it is. I did bring some. I felt it was necessary. Uh, oh, gorks, I've got these things stuffed into a little tiny vase and now I can't get them out. Ah, there we go. There we go. Um, yes, it's winter sweet time and I got home and the first thing I smelt when I got out of the car... Was the winter sweet. Was my winter sweet and it is stunning this year. It is just absolutely laden in flowers um, and uh, mine's a sort of reasonably yellowy one. Some of them are sort of much paler in colour but this mm. one's fairly yellow with its little sort of red... Centre in the middle. Mine's uh, much creamer. Yeah, there, there's And quite... I really don't have the perfume that you have. No, look, I, this is one of the things that uh, over the last few years uh, has started to dawn on me that uh, because they're raised from seed, there is big diversity. So mm. you've got to be lucky to get a really, really good one. And because you don't often uh, get them big enough to buy them in bloom – you do have to take potluck. A That's bit right. Uh, they take quite a few years to settle down and flower well, uh, and you can get good ones and you can get not so good ones. I know my friend Margaret's got one in her garden, and I arrived at my office to find she'd shoved a piece of hers into my office to show people, but hers is much paler, and I didn't think it had a particularly good perfume. No, well, and I thought, well, this isn't going to sell. Mine is too, um, which is. But this one shame. is very special. Yours is yeah. stunning. It I, always has been. Yeah, it's just the most oh. gorgeous, gorgeous scent. So oh. it's worth the risk because I think it's one of the great plants uh, of the uh, uh, of the winter garden. And um, it's tough. 
it grows almost anywhere. Mm. It'll grow in semi-shade through to full sun. It seems to be fairly drought tolerant once its roots are down. Um, you can't ask much more, really. Uh, I, just I, I really just mine. leave mine alone and it yeah. does its own thing. Yeah, I don't remember watering mine in years. No. It's just managed with whatever nature's thrown at it over the last few years. What height did, did they get to? Oh, maybe? well, mine's quite old now. It's probably been in the garden for 20, 25 years. Uh, and it would be... Well, it's probably taller than the studio here, so for about three right. and a half, four metres tall. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's wide. Mm. Uh, I, I pruned the lower branches off it to lift its canopy up so that I can underplant. So I've got bulbs and other small things growing under it. Uh, and it's also quite close to the driveway, so I'm trying to get it up and over the car. Yep. Um, and um, so, you know, although it's a proper shrub because it has multiple stems from ground level, um, it can almost create tree-sized proportions given enough time. And, in fact, I remember many, many years ago when I was when I was doing my first two books, my editor was a lovely lady called Vita Horn, and Vita lived um, just off Turak Road in a little tiny, tiny sort of uh, almost miner's cottage-sized house with, with a front garden that was only about two feet wide, and she had a little back courtyard was her back garden um, and it was all paved and it just had a little tiny narrow bed around the fence. Right. And in this bed was a, a, was a winter suite that completely covered her backyard. Good heavens. Uh, so she pruned it up as well. And this thing came right out and it completely and utterly covered the whole backyard. Wow. Mm. Uh, it was just the biggest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, and I hope it's still there. I mean, Vita's not, but I hope the, the, the tree is still there. I, I have grave doubts about it because if somebody bought the place and didn't know what it was, yeah. they would have taken it out That's uh, right. for sure. But uh, it was a magnificent winter suite and I've never seen anything quite so big. So I don't quite know how old Vita's would have been, but it, it looked to me like it might have dated back to when the house was built. Mm. And it was one of those sort of 1870s sort of era houses. Right. Uh, so it was a huge winter sweep. So it is, it's a great shrub. But yes, there are issues with it. It doesn't flower when it's really young. So you have to be patient. And because they're generally seedling raised, you're not going to find out whether you've got a pale or a darker coloured one until it flowers. And the quality of perfume will vary from plant to plant. Mm. So you do have to be aware of that. Um, I'm going to have to have a crack at some stage of seeing just how difficult this thing is to strike from cuttings because uh, if I can get them growing from cuttings off my own plant, I'd feel much more confident. Um, but, yeah, the stock that you buy is is all seedling raised. Yes. So yep. I'd say that a lot of people have struggled to grow it from cuttings and that's why you just don't see it out there. But who knows? I might give it a crack. Well, I'll if just, you ever give it a crack, I'll have one. <laughs> yeah, well, I might add it's one of those things that I guess if I grew cutting-grown plants that were off a known good performer, then you'd just have to put a slightly more premium price on oh, them if they're course. hard to propagate. I'm, absolutely. You know, so that's what you'd have to do. So I might give it a crack this spring and see if I can get some cuttings struck, see if they're – because most of the books say raised from seed, so I'm assuming it's probably hard. But anyhow, yep. may not be impossible. So if you have a go, for, go from cuttings, what what would, would you do? What time of the year? I, I'm Well, I – I'd attempt early spring cuttings to start yeah. with because anything new that I'm starting, I like to try from really softwood cuttings under a mist spray or a fogger mm. uh, because if they're going to strike easily, normally that's the time they will. But it's not always the case. Some things you need to get harder wood because mm. they just rot off when you put them in the mister mm. uh, if they're too soft. So it might take me a couple of years of experimenting to find a time of the year mm. when it's better. I mean, some deciduous things are better from hardwood cuttings in the winter. Um, well, it's so- interesting you're saying cuttings. We've been doing some experiments with rose cuttings, yeah, and we've been striking them in coconut fibre. Oh, yeah. And coconut fibre is sterile. I've got one of them here in the studio, mm. and this is, act- this is actually Diana's rose, mm. and um, our success rate is 98% yeah. well, that's in coconut fibre. Yeah. 
yeah. but the the value is that in the coconut fiber um it's it just doesn't have any fungus spores or anything yeah, else that's like right. that so it's a nice clean medium mm. so and rotting off with with rose cuttings of course is a, is a real challenge yep. yeah and normally people when they do cuttings they're, they're lucky if they get um you know one one or two percent yeah mm. uh depending on the variety but the other thing we've found is that if now's a good time mm. because things that the the actual the actual cutting itself doesn't dry out. Yeah, yeah, because you've uh, got the damp weather. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I don't know how we'll go with the winter sweet, but anyhow, we'll have a play with it in due course. But it's still a plant worthwhile taking a risk for on. If you do manage to buy one that's in flower and you can suss it out for perfume and things, all the better. Um, but, you know, plant one. I mean, it's just worth it. Mm. really is. Um, talking about coconut fibre, uh, there is quite a story to it. There was coconut fibre that came into Australia about eight or ten years ago, and we found it was actually contaminated with a lot, with a lot of salt mm. from uh, its source, which is usually India or Sri Lanka. Yeah. And um, you can now get um, blocks of coconut fibre, well, dare I say it, at Bunnings, and just soak it in water. So it's a fairly simple thing. You know, looking at about $4.80 for a block of coconut fibre that'll that'll fill just about a 10-litre bucket. Mm. So if people want to have a go with cuttings, yeah. it's um, well, something that's really cheap. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now we're going to do. Some, well, we haven't had anybody ring in yet. No, that number all? again. Yes. We'd love to hear from you this morning. Please do feel free to to give us a call and uh, join in the discussion or ask a gardening question. The number is nine four one nine zero one double five nine four one nine zero one double five. Okay, Stephen. What's next? All right. Well, another little tree that I'm I get a lot of pleasure out uh, of. Over months, in fact, it's it's in full flight at the moment. But this tree has been throwing flowers since about the mid to end of April. Uh, it will still have flowers on it in October, and it's an ornamental cherry. And most cherries, I call them barometer plants, because as soon as they come into flower, the wind picks up. That's right. <laughs> uh, and so you don't have cherries for very long in a garden, as a rule. But this one, which is Prunus subhertella autumnalis, meaning autumn flowering, which is a bit of a misnomer because it flowers right through, um, starts in April before the leaves finish shedding. Okay. And then you'll have you'll have little gaps all the way through, so that it'll throw a spurt of flowers, then there'll be a little bit of a rest for a minute, and then a week or two later it'll throw another batch of flowers, and it does that all the way through to about October. Okay. Okay. Uh, so value for, for space, I reckon this cherry is probably one of the best. The flowers are tiny. Uh, they can be more or less pure white or really soft pink. There's two forms of it lurking around out there, but they're both equally as pretty. Uh, its autumn foliage can be quite pleasant. It goes quite nice shades of oranges and yellows and even sometimes a little bit reddish. Um, it has a nice sort of broadly vase-shaped habit. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it ages, it will become a little bit sort of layered looking. Uh, so it has a nice form. Its foliage is comparatively small for a cherry, so it looks dainty. And then it gets these tiny little pink or white flowers on it that it gets for months and months and months. Uh, and, and again, it, that's got a very dainty look to it. It is. It's very dainty, very delicate looking. Um, and that's part of its charm, I think, is that, you know, at this time of the year when the weather can be pretty ordinary, you look out and here's this beautiful little dainty thing doing its thing and you think, how the dickens can that manage to look so good when the weather's so bleak? Exactly. Um, and like any cherry, they don't want to be in a, in a really heavy, wet clay soil. Uh, they need reasonably good drainage. Um, but it's a it's a comparatively hardy little tree mm. um, and you don't see it for sale very often which is unfortunate uh, it flowers young I've got them in 10 inch pots at the nursery about a metre tall in full bloom you know so you don't have to be patient with it it'll yep. start flowering from a young age excellent um, and it's yeah I think better value than most cherries that are 
offered out there. So it's a really good little plant. So For listeners, again, Stephen, what, what's the botanical name, it's please? It's Prunus subhertella, so S-U-B-H-I-R-R-T-E-L-A, I think. I might have got the double R's and the L's the wrong way around. There might be a double L and a single R, but anyhow, uh, autumnalis, meaning autumn cherry. So you've got to ask for the autumnalis form. There's lots and lots of different subhertella cherries out there. Okay. So it's very important. And in fact, if you went into a nursery and they knew the plant and you asked for the autumn cherry or the autumnalis cherry, they'd know exactly what you mean. Okay. So even without the subhertella bit, the autumnalis should give it away. Okay. So it's a really, really good little tree. Um, and, yeah, you just don't see it around terribly often. Uh, mine in the garden at home would be five metres tall by about four metres wide. Um, and, again, I've lifted some of the lower limbs off it to lift the canopy up into the air a bit. Um, and it's just this really light, airy little tree, which is pleasant all year round. Mm. So well worthwhile. And so that'll go right through the winter, Stephen? Yep, flowers from a- April mm. to October. Mm. And a beautiful, delicate... Yeah, it's That's re- lovely. It's glisten. Yeah, it's... It has enough flower power to be really obvious, but the individual flowers are quite small. Mm. So, uh, so it keeps a really dainty look about it. Looks very um, Jap- Japanesey or Chinesey, doesn't well, it? Well, it does. It has a very mm. oriental look about it. So yes, yes you don't need that um, deer scarer or the Chinese lantern or whatever to have an oriental look in the garden. Plant one of these in a bamboo, and you're fine. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. And of course, speaking of Asian. Another one of the great plants of winter uh, are the witch hazels, Hamamalis. They're very slightly perfumed, but they have these wonderful spidery flowers. Mm. Uh, and this one is one called Pallida, which has pale yellow flowers, but you can get egg yolk yellow flowers right through orange flowers to almost a dark, almost livery burgundy colour. Oh, wow. Um, and they're large shrubs, um, Depending on the variety, some of them grow fairly vertical, others grow out as a sort of a flat fanny effect. Uh, they'll grow eventually. I've got a 30-year-old one in the nursery of this pallida one that would be three metres tall and five metres wide. Okay. Uh, and, again, I've lifted the canopy up so you just walk under it uh, along one of the paths in the nursery, and it's a magnificent thing just coming out in full bloom at the moment. Mm. Uh, they have big leaves that are very much like a hazelnut, hence they're called witch hazels because yep. they look like a hazelnut. Uh, and funnily enough, the autumn colour of the leaves is, in general, um, the same sort of shades as the flower. So if you've got a yellow-flowered one, then its foliage will generally go yellow. If you've got an orangey sort of flowered one, its leaves will go orange. And okay. if you've got a burgundy-flowered one, the leaves It'll will go, go red. It'll go burgundy. Yeah. Wow. So um, uh, I think the witch hazels are lovely plants. Um, great elegance. Probably not for the hottest, driest spots in a garden. Um, I'd try and plant them sort of the east or south in a garden. Um, Although they don't need an acid soil particularly, uh, I'd sort of think about them in the same breath as I would rhodes, azaleas, okay. Japanese maples, yep. you know, that whole group of plants. Yep. Similar conditions that suit those are uh, bound to be fine for, for the witch hazels. Uh, and funnily enough, they've been as scarce as hen's teeth for the last few years, and they're just starting to come back into the marketplace again. A few growers have started to crack how to how to propagate them. They've got to be uh, grafted or budded onto the North American witch hazel because, uh, again, they don't strike easily from cuttings. Uh, and uh, this year I've got a reasonable quantity of different colours and, sh- and decent-sized plants mm. for the first time in years. So the witch hazels are well worth looking out for. 
That bright yellow would really light up the garden on a oh, dull day. It does. Well, mine's actually growing in semi-shade and you look in where it's flowering mm. and it just glitters. Yes. Mm. Really lovely little Gorgeous. thing. That sort of colour you're looking for in the wintertime. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm. I think uh, if you're going to have bright colour in the garden, and winter's the time to get it if you can. Yes. Uh, because that's the time you need cheering up. And yep. I think yellow, and particularly as we're coming into this time of the year where the first jonquils are starting to pop up and flower and... We're getting into the season of yellow, so why not just actually relax right into it and, yeah, well, go with it. It's not going to be long before we've got all the wattles out too. I know yeah, they're, they're in bud. Yeah, yeah, there's a few wattles starting to, to look very close now. Yes. In fact, I'm sure some people have got some out in flower already, I'm some sure of the I'm sure they probably ones. have, yep. Uh, so, yeah, I think the witch hazel is an undervalued and underseen plant in, in Australia. Uh, but it's always a little on the pricey side because it's got to be grafted and you don't see it all that terribly often. Um, but... I mean, when you talk about things being a little more expensive than other things, I mean, in gardening, really, it's not that dear to buy a really special plant. Exactly. Um, and so if something's a little bit more expensive to buy than something else, I mean, you'd probably pay more if you were playing golf. You know, so um, I think gardening's a reasonably inexpensive pastime, really, all things considered. And well, when once you... it's planted, you've got the pleasure for years. Well, I mean, right. go out for a nice dinner and it's all over. Well, actually, <laughs> I often hours. use that as an analogy. I mean, you'll go out and spend a couple of hundred bucks on yes. a meal for you and your partner uh, with a bottle of wine, um, uh, and you could buy probably three witch hazels for there that. There you go. And mm. you think, well, you know, I'm going to have them, hopefully, for longer than I ever even live. Mm. Uh, I mean, my witch hazel, this Pallida one, is now 30 years old. Mm. I reckon I've had damn good value out of that, and it just gets better every year. Absolutely. So, yes, well, so I think it's good value. It's contributing to the environment, and like of dare course. you say it, but it really is. And how can you do, you know, often you, you look at the, the problems we face now, just do your own little thing and plant plants. We mm. say that to people planting roses. You're helping to improve the environment. Yeah, the more your plants we've way. got. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was an article in this morning's age, which I didn't get a chance to read terribly much of, but it was talking about... Trees and their and their benefit from uh, cooling perspective yes. in the city, and they've got two sort of um, uh, those ultraviolet images showing the heat yeah. coming yes. up, and there's a section of Elizabeth Street with no trees over it, and the bitumen is sixty degrees, mm. and then there's another section of the same road with the trees over it, and the, and the actual temperature was thirty five point five. Yes, exactly. Well, that, that's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, it's huge. really that's, you know, that's phenomenal. So you know, plants are really important, and we should mm. be you know. Using I mean, we, them and, we keep talking about greening our cities, but that's a very tangible reason as to why we should be. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. People don't value trees and plants as much as they should. Uh, even those of uh, those of you out there that listen to us perhaps don't value their plants as much as they should. Uh, I mean, they make our lives livable. Absolutely. So, yeah, so anyhow, so witch hazel, another great plant that yep. we should be looking at. Excellent. And whilst we're still waiting for you to ring in, folk. <laughs> Everyone's cuddled yeah. up in bed yeah. because it's cold. Well, I had to get up. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> and if you've got the phone by the bed, you don't even have to get up. <laughs> Uh, a plant I have bought in before many, many moons ago uh, is the wintered flowered clematis, uh, which I find very appealing. Uh, it's, but it's also slightly weird. I mean, it flowers in the winter, and so it's got its foliage in the winter, but it's late summer deciduous. So all its leaves go brown yeah. and drop off in the, in the, in the summer, uh, and it doesn't come back into leaf until it gets its first autumn cool weather. Okay. So it has almost a reverse cycle to most other plants you can mm. think of. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, and, and it's rather off-putting to people because when they buy it, they buy it when it's in flower at the moment, of course, because they see it in flower and they want it. And I always warn them that it will it will 
look dead in, in late summer. They never remember. And I quite and they reg- think they've killed it. Yeah, they think they've killed it. Mm-hmm. And I regularly have people come back and they say, oh, that thing died. Can I have another one? And I don't think I've ever had any come back for a third time. I think they've learnt their lesson learnt. by the second time. Uh, so <laughs> as long is, as they didn't rip it out well, when they, they thought offered, they'd killed yeah, it. They did. They, they oh. do. People pull it out and think it's oh. dead. Mm. Um, so it's a winter-growing, winter-flowering clematis. It has little limey green bells with purple stamens inside. The honey eaters will go past a grevillea to get to this. Mm. It is mm. dripping with wow. nectar, mm. and be. the honey eaters love it. Uh, so they come in like, in swarms when this thing's in flower. I see the eastern spinebills and the New Hollands and yes. all those sort of uh, honey eaters come in and make great use of it in the middle of winter when it's in flower. Uh, and in the spring, after its flowers are finished, it gets the most wonderful big fluffy feathery seed heads, which look fantastic on the plant. In fact, they're even more visually obvious than the flowers are. Right. Uh, So you've got these big fluffy seed heads all the way along the stems. And I have noticed some of the small birds pinching the seed heads for nesting material. Oh, okay. Yes, uh, but I don't think it's restricted to native birds. I've noticed um, uh, sparrows and others are helping themselves to the nesting material as well. (laughs) But anyhow, you can't help that. But I think it's a wonderful climber. Uh, the trick is is to plant it up through a deciduous tree or shrub so that when it's looking at its best, the deciduous tree or shrub is mm. bare so you can see the plant. And when it's looking at its worst, it's somewhat disguised by the plant it's growing through. Mm. So that, for me, works really well. Uh, I do remember a friend of mine planting one once through a purple-leaf potosporum, which worked really well. Uh, but... You don't seem to see the purple leaf potosporums around anymore. I think James Sterling and all those others have taken over, unfortunately. Yes. But there was a purple one, funnily enough, called purpurea, uh, and she had one of these growing up through her purple potosporum, and it picked up the, the cream was of the bells, the creamy green was picked up rather nicely by the purple of the foliage, mm. uh, and the purple stamens sort of somehow or another blended in with the, the foliage, and it was actually quite a nice combination. Right. Uh, so if anybody's got an old purple potosporum out there, maybe they'd like to try that. Uh, but I think it's a wonderful plant, very elegant, uh, hardy, quick-growing, uh, but some are deciduous, so you have to be aware of where you're planting it. So How that, far will it climb? Um, it can grow a reasonable height. It's not rampant like, say, Montana, so right. it's not going to take off and, you know, end up being 15 metres long or yes. something like a Montana can get to. Um, but it would easily grow up an area where it was covering about a four or five metres each okay. way. Mm. Uh, mm. They are prunable, but keep in mind they flower on older wood, so you don't want to prune them too hard because too hard, you might take off some of the flowering. So pruning time, the best pruning time? Uh, best time to prune it is uh, probably as soon as the seed drops. Mm-hmm. Um, prune it back then because then it might send up a little bit more growth before the autumn so that it'll mm. – or before the summer when it goes dormant so that it'll have some more stuff on it for the autumn when it comes oh, out to flower mm. again. Mm. But certainly if you can get away without pruning it altogether, it's probably simpler. Okay. So just leave it alone. Uh, the one I've got in the nursery garden was actually burnt to the ground by the Ash Wednesday bushfires in 83, and it shot from the roots again, uh, and it did take about three or four years to settle down again and start flowering. So, um, you know, so if, if you give them a hiding, it'll take a while to come back again. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so Clematis napolensis, the Napolese... Clematis. I think and if people, people are looking at clematis, we sell quite a few in the rose nursery. 
Um, and they do come back to us and say, oh, it's dead. Oh, God, uh, yes. The best thing you can do really is just do a few little nips on the on on the branches mm. just to see if you get gr- green. And if you, if you get the green, say, oh, leave it alone. Mm. Leave it alone. Just let yeah. it do its thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the unfortunate thing about most clematis is the fact that they do have a very dramatically dead-looking dormancy. Yes. Mm. You know, mm. and, and early yeah. in the season they, they tend to hold their dead leaves so they, mm. they look a bit ratty. Mm. Um, and they don't show signs of nice fat green buds until later in the season so mm. you do have that period where they just look dead mm. uh, and so to the uninitiated yes they immediately assume they've lost it mm. uh, and a lot of them do pull them out before they actually check mm. Mm. and mm. you know i guess it's good for the nursery trade if you're going to go out and buy another one but mm. uh it's a bit of a waste of money if you pull out something that was oh, probably exactly. perfectly fine exactly mm. so, yeah the clamas are particularly Outstanding in New Zealand. We yeah, they're amazing. They well, they like the cooler climates. I have mm. to say. Uh, I mean, Normandy is another place whereby you can see them in absolutely incredible vigour. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll see them dripping out of rose arbors. You'll see them mm. growing up through trees. You'll you'll see them everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they use clematis up through everything, mm. particularly the big flowered hybrids because they can chop them off at the socks in the winter so yeah. that they don't actually swamp their host plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, if you say growing one through a rose bush, you can prune the rose, prune the clematis, do the whole lot yeah, at once. The whole thing. Uh, and so it's comparatively straightforward. Mm. Whereas if you put a clematis up through, say, a rose that is a clematis that has a permanent woody structure, mm. then you've got a bit more of a problem because yeah. it's harder to prune the rose mm. and sometimes they get too heavy. Mm. Yeah, heavy and thick. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay, we've got our first caller online. We're going to Robert, who's on Phillip Island. Good morning, Robert. Hello, how are you all? We're well, thank you. Uh, I thought I'd better ring in and give a, give a quick report on uh, what's happening down here. Yes, good. Rather cool this morning. <laughs> I bet it wasn't not as, cool as bad as, as last weekend. <laughs> no, it was not. No, no. I was up at John Smith's, the daffodil grower up at Tyres. All right. right. Up in the mountain near Walhalla. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it was. It was cold. I bet. Yeah. The icy wind was coming in, but still, it's a beautiful time of year. I'd rather this uh, time of year than summer, but to each his own. I, uh, what I was going to mention, um, uh, I have a bit of trouble with carnation uh, mm-hmm. slips trying to get them to grow yeah. especially the hybrid ones or the the rarer colors well that's that's just murphy's law <laughs> oh right yes yeah you tend to find that the harder ones to strike are the ones you really want it just seems to be the way it goes uh, what are you trying to strike them in robert i use potting mix just straight potting mix. Yeah, uh, I, I think with carnations, I'd use something that's a little more inert than potting mix. I'd be looking right. at you could try the coconut fibre that um, uh, oh, yeah. Graham was talking about, or you could use perlite, uh, or you could mm-hmm. use coarse washed sand. Uh, I think I'd rather use something that's a completely inert material because potting mixes have a certain nutrient level. They also have bacteria and things in them that mm. are fine yeah. when they're going into a pot to grow a plant but are not such a good idea for cuttings. Uh, so I think probably your main problem is what you're potting them into. All right. And uh, even I have a bit of problems with uh, some of the uh, nice... Uh type of flowers too and getting uh, chrysanthemums mm. I don't always get a good strike with some chrysanthemums yet people say they're easy to 
strike, but some of the rarer ones once again. Yeah. Look, uh, the more bred something is, often the more delicate it is, mm. and therefore the harder oh, it is right. to propagate or to keep. Um, so, yes, when, when we keep breeding and breeding and breeding for certain attributes, we often lose others. And it, so, yes. you know, yes. so that can be one of the, the problems that you have with some of these plants. Um, so um, I just think you need to move away from potting mix for most of your cutting propagating, right. though. Um, yeah. I mean, even with Chrissy's, I think I would use something like pearl light or sand or something like that to strike the cuttings in and then it's a matter of making sure you have adequate moisture at the base of the cutting Mm. uh, until the cutting gets roots so if they dry out at all you're going to lose them so they need to be kept moist without being wet so it's the trick of getting them just that right level of moisture until they start forming a root system the other thing about using something inert is that when they start to form roots there's nothing there for them to feed on so they go madly sending out roots looking for something to feed on and that's actually what you want a cutting to do you don't Mm. want it to be able to take up nutrient as soon as it starts producing Uh, roots because then it slows up yes 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 I, I've got it getting some of the John quills are starting to come out. I've got the first first um, daffodil probably ready to flower in a couple of days. Oh, yeah. wow. Quite early. That and, sounds early, Robert. Yes. Now, last week at John Smith's, I saw he spread a, um, you know, the Sol Dior. Uh, yeah, style of Suzettes, yeah. He spread that with another species, so he's created a Sol Dior that's about three or four times the size of an ordinary Sol Dior. Are we sure we like that? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, magnificent scent. Yeah, oh, well, if it's kept the scent, that's good, but I'm not sure whether I approve of a flower three or four times the size of what it should be. No, I've never seen anything like it, Uh, whether he got got it from America or something, but it's a magnificent thing. Mm. And flowers about a month earlier before everything else. Oh, that in a sense could be valuable. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure that size is always that important, but if you can you can get a cultivar that flowers out yeah. of sync with the others, yeah. that's always useful because it gives you flowers at a different time of the year. Yeah. So yeah. that sounds worthwhile. Yes, and I've let the pigeons out a bit. I think I've got the best fed hawks in the island, but oh. the, the pigeons are learning now to... Uh, twist and uh, turn in the sky and they come straight down to their loft. Right. So they're getting used to the hawks and the hawks are getting used to the pigeons. I still lose a pigeon now and again, but it's worth worth it to keep the hawks around. I love to see different... Well, the raptors species. are important, but I'm not sure I'd be wanting to breed pigeons just to feed the raptors, well, but anyhow. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> the, the hawks were here a long time before the pigeons. Well, of course they were. True. Of course yes, they were. But and anyway, everything they've all settled down and each species seems to be enjoying themselves. And this year, I hope to have a better year growing cucumbers. I've well, a... that's going to be weather determined. Right. Last yeah. two years, I, I had the poorest lot of cucumbers I've grown. I don't know why, but usually they do well. So yeah. you think we had a funny a... start to the season last we year. We did. Uh, yeah. And I think that could have uh, had a fair bit to do with any of those sort of Cucabit things, the pumpkins, cucumbers, yes. squashes, all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, I think because we started off rather poorly warmth-wise, uh, they just didn't get away. Mm. Didn't get away, yeah. yeah. So oh, you've got to hope for a better spring, I think, if you're going to grow good uh, uh, good things in that family. Good things in that family. Anyway, good to talk to you all and I wish you well. Okay, well, good luck with the cuttings, Robert. Yes. Let's, let's know if you have some success. Yes, you'll have to call in one t- time, Pam, if you're down here at Phillip Island. I will have to. I've got, I've got a lot of your your um, daffodil bulbs um, are, are up now, so I'm they? just 
rubbing my hands with glee, waiting for the flowers. But there's certainly you're going to beat me by a long shot. I think. <laughs> yes, yes, we'll see how they go. Yeah, yeah. we'll see how it, how it all pans out. But good to talk to everybody, and we'll catch you later. Good right. on you, Robert. Bye, bye. bye. Right, next up we have uh, David, who's in Cheltenham. Good morning, David. Uh, good morning, Keen. Look, I've got a, we've got a lemon tree. I think it's a Lisbon. It's about eight years old. And we had a fellow, a garden fellow, come in to do our tree pruning last year, and he really hacked this thing about. He used a sort of a chainsaw-type thing on a wand, um, which left rather rough cuts. But the he, he cut it back to about seven feet, eight feet high, but we've now got shoots going up five or six feet. There's about 20 of them. That's what um, happens with lemon trees when you prune uh, them heavily. Uh-huh. So now my question is what do we do? Should we should we cut these enormously tall shoots, which are almost doubling the height of the tree, or let them or, or cut, just cut the tops of the shoots out? Wherever you cut to, wherever you cut to is where they will shoot from. So right. if you just take the tips out of them, they'll shoot at that from top there. point. Mm. Uh, they'll be top heavy. Uh, yeah, so yeah. The, the issue you've now got is probably the best thing to do is uh, I wouldn't do it just yet. I'd wait till the warmer weather sets in, but yeah. once the spring gets underway, I'd bring those shoots back quite hard. And then by midsummer, they'll have shot out two or three from each of those stems, and then I'd take them back as well. Uh, uh, so we, and we, so start building okay. a framework back into so, the plant. Uh, okay, so when, when would you when would you start by cutting them? Well, where you are, I would probably do my first cut probably mid-September because it's not too cold where you are. Uh, uh, So I'd do my first cut about mid-September. By end of October, early November, they'll probably have shot away again. Uh, And then I'd I'd bring them back to only two or three buds from where they started and just keep doing that right over the summer. Every every, every time you get a really good spurt of growth, take the tips out of all those spurts of growth to try and slowly settle the plant back again. Yes. All right. Thanks very much. That's a pleasure. Bye. Yes, I don't think it's a good idea to prune citrus trees quite as heavily as no. that personally, but uh, <laughs> um, because it does, it, and it, actually, it's the same with a lot of trees. You pr- people forget pruning isn't a control mechanism for size. It's not. It creates vigor, <laughs> and so you know, although the plant is smaller initially, it will put every effort into getting as big as it was before, or even bigger, because it's got a huge root system. The root under system it. To work yes, with, yeah. that's right. So light pruning is generally safer on vigorous plants, and heavy pruning on weak plants. Mm. But we tend to do the other way around. You have yep. poor little weak rows, so mm. they'll just take the top inch off it, that's and right. then they'll have some vigorous damn thing, and they'll they'll cut it down to a stump. Yes, uh, and they're, all they're doing is encouraging the the inappropriate behaviour in both directions. Yes. So yeah, prune your prune your weak one hard and your hard and your strong one weakly. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, uh, and that always works better for me. Mm, mm. Definitely. Yeah. You are listening to the Three CR Gardening Show. We are running through until nine fifteen, so plenty of time if you'd like to jump on the phones and give us a call. We have Steve and Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm in Clombenane in the studio. So uh, do feel free to ask a gardening question. That number is 94190155. Graham, you've brought in a rose called Fire. I presume that this is um, a so-called charity rose and some of the the sale is going back to support firefighters, is it? Um, Yes, it's part of a scheme that Swains have in um, uh, New South Wales. And of course, they released the rose here in in, in in Australia, 
and um, it's been named firefighter. And it's also a rose that I found has a particularly um, very, very um, pleasant but strong perfume, mm. as we as most people look for in a red rose. There's always the look at the red rose, and then of course in goes your nose. Yeah. Yes, and um, it's 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 even um, I, I find it even more powerful than Mr. Lincoln, and Mr. Lincoln's probably outside of white icebergs the biggest selling rose in Australia, mm. and um, so it. it it will get up to two metres in height. And um, we've had some customers who've, who've got even, say, 40 of these plants in their garden because they love the colour and the perfume. Mm. And, of course, to take it inside and put it in a vase when you've got a, a number of flowers, it's a real, real great experience. Mm. Yeah. So it's a good rose. It's not just that you're going to be helping uh, a particularly important uh, group in our community, yeah. but it's actually a good rose in its own right anyway. Well, Stephen, back again to what you, you were just simply talking about then, about mm. pruning. Mm. It will get to up to two metres in height. So it's a big rose. Yes, it, mm. it'll get up tall, and it, it does enjoy some good pruning back to get that vigour mm. and to get it to start to bush up. Mm. But don't let it get too leggy. Mm. Yeah, mm. but the quality of the flower is good. The perfume yes. is good. Um, is it a re- Does it seem to show good disease resistance as well? Yes, it's pretty good. Yeah, yep. and and the the flower has um, well over over forty five fifty petals in it. So being like that, nice and tight, it holds on very well. So it's a good cut flower. Yeah, mm. Mm. there's an expectation, of course, people um, go into a florist and they look at uh, roses and they know that the tight buds hold. Especially, yes. especially in our climate, yes. and they're always looking for that. But of course, they get to um, smell the red rose in the florist, and they don't get the experience of the perfume. But yeah, um, I think most florists should whip around with a bit of Chanel or something like that, <laughs> and, uh, create a bit of perfume on some of those roses. <laughs> if, if the Chanel came from flowers, and I'm not too sure what uh, happens with a lot of our perfumes, yeah. a lot of them artifi- are artificial, aren't they? Mm. But yeah, a good rose. And and uh, the red. Is it a fire engine red or oh, it's a deeper? Dark, it's a, a dark, dark red. red, which people really love. Yes, yeah, they go for that dark, darker red. Um, that you know, that's speaking for Australia anyway. Mm. That's, that's what people do love. Mm. Yeah, Excellent. and it's an appropriate colour then for a rose called firefighter. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's nice to see a name that sort of somehow or another suits the plant. Mm. Yes. I get annoyed when you see a plant and they give it some sort of weird name that has no mm. real connection or no. Or it doesn't even sound nice. Mm. Uh, how are you going to sell a plant called Faggotter's Favourite? <laughs> there is a rhododendron out there called that, and I think it's virtually disappeared from cultivation. And I'm, yes. I'm sure Mrs Faggotter that it was named after was a lovely mm. person, mm. but the name is absolutely dreadful. Exactly. You know, uh, whereas a rhododendron called Pink Pearl, a sold. Sa- sellable name. Yes. And so it's, it's, it's not a scrap on Faggotter's Favourite as a good rhododendron, but well, it's the one that's still there. That's we have right. a, a, a horrific Incidents in the rose were where one rose was named Podunk. Oh, that sounds pretty ordinary, me. doesn't it? And it never sold. And 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 that rose, of course, is um, Alina um, or Eleanor. Some people call it Eleanor. Yes. And it's considered to be probably one of the best hybrid tea roses that's ever been bred. And when they changed the name, sales just took off. Yeah, well, yeah. podunk doesn't sound too yes. good, does it? Yes. No. Yeah, yeah. Some some breeders need to have a little bit of an education in plant naming as yes. well as breeding. I mean, some mm. of them breed good plants, but they don't know what to call them. Yes. So, yes, that's very sad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. oh dear. Yes. Anyway, um, I'm, I must uh, say we were 
we were we had a wonderful experience with um, uh, a group of us from the Horticultural Media mm. Association uh, were given the pleasure of touring the herbarium. Oh yes, I wasn't week. able to go. You on were that. away. I was yes. away, but I did see the see the email about it and thought, yes. oh, that would have been fun. I would Look, have it was that. it was fascinating. If mm. if any listeners ever get the opportunity mm. to be shown around the herbarium, it is just the most fascinating place. Mm. It really is. Mm. Um, you know, they they well they they desperately need a new building. They <laughs> they really don't have much room at all. Yeah. For, um, and they and would yet love that building's to then have a, not that old, is it? Or the extensions to that the building? The extensions aren't that old, yeah. but... Um, yeah, they're already filled it up. I mean, there's so many wonderful things they have that, that just can't be put out on display yeah. because there's just no room for it. But, oh, dear. Uh, you know, some of the, some of the, the old books and the journals mm. and uh, some of the plant specimens are just incredible. And uh, we were watching fascinated... Uh, a uh, quite elderly woman was one of the volunteers working in there, um, literally mounting, um, you know, dried specimens yeah. on onto um, proper um, paper yeah. so that it wouldn't deteriorate. And the the painstaking work and all of this is being done by volunteers. It's incredible, mm. yeah. really incredible. Yes, I don't know how our society would work these days if we didn't have those sort of quiet, achieving volunteers all Absolutely. around the place doing mm. stuff. Um, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. And these volunteers have been there 20, 30 years. I yeah. mean, you know, mm. they just keep coming back every week mm. and doing it. And, and, and they get no recognition half the time for what they're doing. They just yes. do it for the love of it. Yes, I mean, exactly. those people should have a plant named after them or something, as long as their name's not Faggata. Um <laughs> But no, uh, just... Um, you know, it, it, it's just, just a fantastic place if anyone mm. ever does have the opportunity to uh, be given a, an escorted tour. It's uh, just wonderful. And you can still, if you have a plant that you want to have an ID of, yep. you really don't know what it is, um, they still, uh, of a Friday morning, you can yes, go you can in go there in, yep. and, uh, and they will give you a, a full rundown of exactly what it is, its full botanic names, um, where it's, it's found in the world or in Australia, what parts, mm. um, what climates. Um, what a wonderful service. Oh, it is. It's remarkable. It's really handy because, I mean, even, even the best of us will find plants we haven't met before. Yes. Uh, and to have a service where you can go in there and find out what it is. Mm. Although I might add that if people are taking specimens into the herbarium for IDing, it's really handy if they've got flowers and or fruit on them. Yeah. Sometimes exactly. just a sprig of leaves. Isn't is not... going to do it. I, I can remember walking into the herbarium one day years and years ago and two of the botanists are there scratching their head over this branch with leaves on. Yes. And because they work a lot with dried specimens, sometimes seeing the live material looks different. Mm. Um, and um, I knew what the plant was immediately because it was something that I was growing uh, and, and I recognised it just from the foliage. But they had no flowers or fruit on, so yes. there was no way of them actually keying it out. Yes. So you do need flowers or fruit uh, or both for preference, but it's not often the case in the plant world, but certainly flowers, mm. um, so that they can lead them in the right direction if they're IDing something obscure. Yes, mm. exactly. Well said. Okay, let's go next to uh, Pippa, who's in Sydenham. Good morning, Pippa. Good morning. Um, I want to ask you about roses. Um, and where is your uh, nursery? And also, do you sell any of the um, roses from Buma? From uh, Alistair Clark's garden. 
Mm. Yeah, we do, do. We do have some, um, like Lorraine Lee and Nancy Haywood, and oh, great. That, that's that's just about the the rains that we do have, um, mm. and the Alistair Clark roses uh, also can be obtained from um, Thomas for Roses in South Australia. Thomas for Roses in South Australia. Thomas for Roses. Yes. And where is your nursery exactly? Our, our nursery is at a place called Clonbanane. I'll spell that, that for you. C-L-O-N-B-I-N-A-N-E. Right, and that is where? We're right next to the Hume Freeway, just east of Kilmore. Oh, I know Kilmore. Gosh. Now, another topic entirely different. Um, amaranth, eating amaranth. Mm-hmm. When do you plant the seeds? Spring. Spring. You, you need to put them in after the frosts are over. Oh, marvellous. And um, have, you ever, have you ever tried growing it? I've eaten amaranth. I eat it every year. But I eat the leaves off the garden flower one as well. Um, <laughs> I've got the cordata one, the one with the, the people call love lies bleeding. And I eat the foliage of that. Um, and all I do, because I find it a little tasteless, I have to say. Uh, so what I do is I uh, sweat an onion off in a, in a saucepan, uh, chopped up onion. And as soon as it's sort of sweated down a wee bit, I just throw the amaranth leaves in with it and just put the lid on it and have it on a low heat until it all sort of wilts down. Then I stir it all up together put a little bit of pepper on it and serve it as a green. Marvellous. You see, you can do anything if you know. Yeah, well, of course. And, and that was my own experimenting with it because I, uh, I didn't really – well, I, did, I never think to Google. I mean, if you Google things, you can always find a recipe for something. Uh, but I just worked it out for myself because I tried it the first time and I thought, oh, well, I guess it's green and it's good for me, but it's not all that flavoursome. You basically treat it like spinach. Yeah, you can treat it like, yeah, spinach or silver beet or one yep. of those. Mm. But it has a very soft leaf, so it does, it does it, uh, wilt down very quickly. It cooks down very, very quickly. Yeah, yep. yeah. So, but, yeah, we use it a lot in the summer uh, because its its foliage is there for months and months and months. Um, and we get great value out of amaranth leaves. Well, thank you very much for your wealth of information. Okay, then. Uh, it's a Thanks, pleasure. Pippa. Bye. And, of course, with amaranthus cordatus, uh, I can pick the flowers as well and use them as a, as a floral thing exactly. in the house as well. So exactly. Very useful plant. Yeah, yeah, and very attractive, striking. Oh, yeah, they are. I think they're great. And it self-seeds itself, so I hardly ever have to actually plant it once I've got it. Yep. In fact, if anything, it's a bit of a nuisance in the veggie garden because I'll sow a crop of something in the spring and then all of a sudden the amaranth will all come <laughs> all up out come of the ground. All come up bread. through. Yeah, and, and swamp out whatever it was I was actually trying to grow at the time. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm in that quandary. Do I leave the amaranth or pull it all out? And I think, well, I can eat the amaranth. If I've lost those lettuce seedlings because the amaranth has swamped them, does it really matter? So, I don't know. Yep. Oh, Philosophical well. about these things. <laughs> oh, so, did you come home to anything in your veggie garden or uh, you've got to start again? Uh, no, look, um, I've got things coming along. Uh, I mean, the broad beans are up probably about two feet tall now okay, um, and just starting to grow through their well mesh frame that I put above them just before I went ho- away. Well, you thought you'd put those in fairly late I this year, didn't you? I did put them in you? quite late, yes. but they're, they're kicking away. They're okay. doing all right. Uh, the garlic's doing well. It's yes. looking really good um, and growing pace, so I'm quite pleased with the garlic. Uh, the broccoli's struggling because I put it in rather too late as well because I just didn't have the time when I should have put it in. Yep. Uh, but it'll come away again in the spring. Once it gets a bit of warm weather on it, it'll be off and away. And the silver beet's all right. I can get some silver beet if I need it. Uh, I cooked some rhubarb the other day Okay. because my rhubarb plants had lots of leaves on it, and I thought, well, 
Why not? So I, I cooked some rhubarb. And in fact, what I wanted to do, it's, and I don't know how this is going to work, but anyhow, I'm trying it out. What I wanted to do was to use the rhubarb bed to grow d- tulips in. So I pulled all the leaves off the rhubarb other than just leaving the crowns yes. so that uh, they were out of the way. Okay. And then I planted 100 purple tulips in the bed all the way around the crowns of the, right. of the rhubarb. Right. And my plan is to stop the rhubarb getting too tall until after the tulips have flowered and then the rhubarb can have the bed back again and they'll grow over the top of the tulips and swamp the tulips when the tulips are dying down. My plan. I don't know whether this is going I to don't. work <laughs> or not, um, but it is the plan. Okay. Uh, you've got to have a plan, Stephen. Yeah, and, yeah. and it, look, it's worth experimenting. I mean, yes. if it doesn't work particularly well, then I don't have to do it again. Mm. But I can't see any reason because the rhubarb's reasonably well-spaced. I mean, mm. I've got it you know, nicely apart so that the leaves have got room in the summer. Yes. So you've got all this bare ground in the winter. Okay. Mm. And I thought, well, it's silly. So I got in touch with Teslas and said, can I have 100 purple tulips, please? Uh, the unfortunate thing about it was the tulips arrived while I was away. Ah, so I only got them in this week. Right. Uh, or this last week. Yes. Because I've only been home a week. So yes. on Wednesday I got out in the garden, cleaned up the rhubarb bed, pulled all the extra leaves off the rhubarb and took them into the kitchen for cooking the stems and then um, planted the 100 tulips in the bed. So it's a bit late, but the uh, tulips are one of those you can plant comparatively late and still get away with them. Uh, and so I've got a whole bed full of Saigon tulips. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> um I've done it under asparagus, and it works under asparagus all okay. right. Um, so as rhubarb having a not dissimilar growth pattern where it's sort of summer growing and winter dormant, I figure I might get away with it. Uh, the leaves will probably push a few tulips over, but, uh, yeah, so there you go. That's what I've been doing in the, in the vegetable garden, okay. planting tulips, okay. um, which does sound odd. But, yep. yeah, now that it's, it's sort of past the solstice and what have you, I must get the rest of the beds cleaned up and ready for spring planting. Uh, but I will have some late winter veggies and things that I can yep. manage with, but there's not much to get out of the veggie garden at the moment, yep. mainly because I just haven't had the time to be there. Yeah, of course. Yep. You know, so it's been a hectic season. And, of course, being away in October, uh, that could be a bit of an issue as well. Yes. Because September will be too early to plant things and beginning of November. By the time you get back, it's going to be a bit late. It might be a bit late for some things. So, But, you know, they're the prices you pay. That's right. That's right. I mean, if you're going to be really self-sufficient out of your vegetable garden, you need to be in it all the time. Well, true. Mm. You know, and and I just don't have the time to be in it all the time. But I don't often buy greens. Um, So, you know, we live off our veggie garden to a large extent. Mm. Uh, and I grow, uh, and I only have sweet corn in season that I pick myself because uh, you can never buy good sweet corn. It's oh, always no. Dreadfully it's dreadfully shocking. Flavourless rubbish. I wouldn't ever bother. No. Well, it's funny because we get the uh, spent greens and things from the local supermarket for our chooks, and some sweet corn arrived one day that was perfectly sound sweet corn. I don't yep. know why they'd thrown it in the thing. And Craig said, oh, why don't we eat it? And I said, well, it's not going to taste any good. And so he was determined not to waste it as he saw it because the <laughs> chooks love it. They'll get... Stuck yep. into it. Right yep. uh, so he cooked it and it was like eating cardboard. Yes. It was just awful. Mm. And yep. I thought, well, never again. No. The chooks get those. Yep. Um, and yeah, so poor, we, we, poor old chooks. They get They enjoy <laughs> it. Oh, anyway. they love it. Yeah, they, 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 they see They're some not corn complaining. Coming, yeah, they see some corn come into their thing. They don't know whether it's sweet or not. It's still corn. Uh, so they eat it and they get all of the lettuce leaves and cabbage leaves and everything that come around from the green, from the little supermarket. They just put everything in a box for me. Yep. And I go around and anything that I know the birds aren't going to peck through goes into the compost. 
compost. So if there's some onions <laughs> that have gone off in there or some old potatoes or whatever, they will go in the compost. Uh, and the greens and things that are amongst it that I know the birds will have a crack at, yep. that all goes into the chook shed. Yep. So I call myself a net green waste importer. Mm. <laughs> uh, because I more, bring far more in and nothing ever goes out. Fair enough. So, well, I fa- I've failed to be amazed at the amount of green feed that my fowls will eat. Yes. And I'm feeding them on silver beet at the moment, kale and chard. And, um, and of course, they've got grass to feed on. And it shows out in the eggs. shows out beautifully mm. in the eggs. Mm. They just love it. And they can't get that um, with, with battery-grown fowls. They just oh, don't no, get it with not. eggs. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What Good. you put in is what you get out. Well, of course absolutely. it is. Yeah. Everything in life. Yeah, yeah. Mm. absolutely. All right, let's go next to uh, Alan, who's in Heidelberg. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Graham. Good morning. Um, Graham, I was interested in your comments before about an hour ago about your um, coconut fibre yes. for um, propagating um, roses. Yes. Um, could you just run through... Pick, pick your brains and run through how you um, moisturise the coconut fibre and how much moisture you have in the fibre when you put your cuttings in. Um, with the moisture in the fibre, I'll, I'll water it over. When I put the cuttings in, I leave the cuttings. I don't water the cuttings at all until we start to get into the warm weather in, in around about um, uh, the beginning of September and then water them very sparingly then maybe once a week. Yeah, because the fibre would hold a fair bit of water, yes. wouldn't it? So you, yeah. you could easily overwater if you weren't yes, careful. very easily. And, of course, we use the coconut fibre in all the rows we send out in the mail all through the year, and, and it holds the moisture along the fibres of the coconut fibre, which is really good. So to answer your question, yes, they, they, um, the, the coconut fibre doesn't require a lot of water at all. And um, when you said before you put it into a bucket, yes. um, any excess moisture... Um, do, you, do you squeeze it out or do you have a hole in the bucket so it does will tend to run out? We'll, we'll, we'll tend to run out. And if you get the compacted coconut fibre, and that's mainly the way that you can get it out on the marketplace, they'll tell you how much water you should add to that block of coconut fibre. Right, okay. And they're quite um, specific about that. Yeah, I've had a few problems with um, either too much water or not enough water in my yeah. cuttings. Yes. And they tend to either shoot... And then rot off or um, don't strike at all. Mm. Um, well, well, with your cuttings, do you take sort of um, pencil thickness, current seasons, prunings? Yes. Preferably where there's a flower has just finished. Oh, so going for more the right younger type of um, wood. Yeah. Rather yeah, than hardy. More, more you, you can try, do, do some cuttings on some older wood. Some roses will, will strike better from that old older wood, but mainly they will they'll strike from the wood that's just finished the flower. Yeah, okay. And um, do you treat it like you do with grapes where you take a, um, um, say, a number of cuttings about um, 150 mil long and then tie them in a bundle and then pluck them into the um, media? No. You don't get no. separate them, do you? No, I don't like that idea at all because when you get to the stage of having to transplant them out again, you've got those lo- lovely little white fibre roots and they tend to break off. So okay. I treat them. I do treat them individually. So you treat them quite delicately. Yes, just individual yeah. individual cutting into a little a little plug. I've got one here in the in the surgery at the moment. You can buy um, coconut fibred plugs, or you oh, can yes. you can buy um, just um, trays with the 
with the in the old language about an inch by inch, by inch plug in each you know, individually throughout the tray. Mm-hmm. And um, do you when while they're sitting between now and say um, mid mid spring, you don't bother covering covering over the um, with plastic, or do you leave them in the open? No, I leave them in the open. And you put a shelter from obviously from the um, elements, of course. A bit. Yeah, well, I've got them in a in a in about a fifty percent shade area. Don't put them out in the direct sun. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's it. I'll give another go. I've, I've had one success over about seven years. Right. Um, but the rest well, of I've got to applaud didn't. you for your persistence then. <laughs> well, every now and then I get, I get um, enthused about it. Yes. When I hear something different, I'll try that, something else, see yeah, how it goes. Oh, have, have a go, mate, because when you do get them to strike, you, you feel, ah, yes, that's something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's an achievement. Isn't it like funny, as commercial baby. nursery people, yeah. we still get a kick out yes. of every pot of cuttings <laughs> that we empty yeah. out or every tray of seedlings we yes. empty out. Uh, you still get a huge kick out of it. Yes. So, it's part of why I'm there. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of life, isn't it? Oh, yes. It's and, a challenge. And oh, well, thank I, you, Alf, and I'll um, have a good day. Well, while, okay. while you're talking, yeah. Alan, just yeah. while you're talking, when you get to around about September and you've got uh, got the, ro- the rose cutting in that plug, take it out and put it into, into say, an 8-inch pot. I see. Okay, and then water that over with, with liquid seaweed um, mm-hmm. and give it liquid seaweed at least once a, once a week. So you leave, leave, leave the um, cutting in the plug and then put it into the media? Straight into the media. Don't disturb the roots if you mm-hmm. can. Yeah. Yep, and, the, and you're, you're using, um, what sort of media would you put it into? I'd use it in, put it into a good potting mix. Yeah, potting mix then. Yeah, or, so or coconut fibre. Or coconut fibre, but you've got to fertilise the coconut fibre because there's no fertiliser in it. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So you're waiting to see a couple of shoots uh, on the stems before you do that transplant? Yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. All right, well... I think I understand it all, but I'll give another go and see what, see what happens. Okay, good. good on you, Alan. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Right, next up we have, uh, let me see, Diane, who's out in Templestowe. Good morning, Diane. Oh, good morning. I'm um, sorry, the man before has asked all the questions I was going to. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Except that when um, Graham says about the plug, yes. I imagine that the coconut fibre was in a block and then you wet it yes. and put it in a in a pot or something, and then put your rose clippings in. Yes. Yes. Well, what's the plug that you're talking about? Oh, you can you can buy plugs of coconut fibre as well. Oh, but and put a cut, each cutting into one of those. Each one, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I see. Yeah. Uh huh. And um, when you take the cutting, do you? You know, I haven't pruned the roses yet. So when I take it, do I put it immediately into it? Yes. Or oh, you do. You don't let it. Um, sort of dry off a no, little bit, or no. anything. and you're better no. off just um, slipping a, a a pen in into the coconut fibre, yes. and then slip yes. the cutting in in that. Otherwise, you tend to bruise the end of the cutting, and that's mm-hmm. where the fungus sets Good. in. Did you say slip or split? Slip, slip. Oh, that's all right because you know I thought I might have to cut it a little bit to get um, at the bottom. You know, no, no, it up. no, 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 no need that. to do that. All right. Oh well, look, thank you. That's terrific. Yeah. That's okay. What I needed to know. I've heard it all from the man before. So that's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Bye. 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 Right. We have uh, Mim online. Good morning, Mim. Oh, uh, good morning. Look, I'm looking for a couple of things, and I'm wondering if Stephen might have them. Mm. Um, one's Calicarpa deponica. Uh, yes, I have. They're very, very small at the moment, though. Mm-hmm. 
but I have got plants struck. I had quite a good crop that I thought was going to last me through until next spring, uh, but a lady from Sydney came down and bought the whole lot for a group of bonsai enthusiasts up yes, there. Yes, they're mad for them. Yeah, and I, I don't quite get it because it's, it's not a plant that I would have thought would make a classic bonsai, but anyhow, uh, obviously it does. Yes, they're desperate for it. Yeah, um, so I will have some more, but I would like to keep them now until they break in the spring with some new growth because they're quite they're virtually struck cuttings in a six-inch pot. Oh, I see, righto. Look, the other thing is that Campanula cochleara folia. No, I don't do any campanulas. No. Um, no. And the other thing for... I wondered if you could help me with, what would it tell me about, was Osmanthus because um, I, I've only come across it because I bought a, a, a gorgeous scent. And um, it's based on that plant, and I wondered if you could tell me about it. Yeah, well, it's a genus of about 32 species. Yes. Uh, there's a number of cultivars and selections, particularly with variegated leaves. Um, they come mainly from the Northern Hemisphere, although, funnily enough, there's one that grows in New Caledonia. Um, but the ones we grow in gardens here tend to be mainly Japanese and Chinese. Yes, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. That's what it's based on, this scent. Yeah, and uh, the one that's normally used for its perfume is Osmanthus fragrans. And it makes a large uh, evergreen shrub, has dark green, almost camellia green foliage, uh, tiny little white or sometimes apricot-coloured flowers, depending on which form you get. Um, it grows quite well in fairly heavy shade, uh, tends to be autumnal flowering, and the flowers are not particularly showy, but the perfume will waft all over the garden. And in the fresh scent, I always think it has a sort of a, a almost fruity apricot fragrance to yes, it. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes. And it's just a lovely shrub, uh, well worth growing. And do you have that? Yep. Oh, uh, I think the ones I've got at the moment are Osmanthus fragrance in its white form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I occasionally have the orange flowered form, but I don't know that I've got any in stock at the moment. Uh, but it's a very worthy shrub. Oh, lovely. Thanks very much. Okay, it's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Yes, another one of those great world fragrant plants like the winter sweet. In fact, in China, uh, they have pagodas in gardens from which to smell the osmanthus and things like that. So it's a very well thought of fragrant plant in China. Yes, Mm. fantastic. Uh, Pam, I'd just like to mention about a a pruning uh, demonstration. There will be one on at at the Whittlesey Courthouse on the 15th of July. Okay. And that'll be commencing at 10, 10 a.m. in the morning. So that's next Saturday? That's next Saturday, yes. Okay, at Sorry. 10 a.m. in the morning? Yes. And yeah. uh, the Whittlesea Courthouse, is that in the main road? That's, Whittlesea Courthouse is in the main road, yes. Okay. Yeah. I'll be doing a pruning uh, demonstration there. I, I prune all their roses, and while we're doing that, we do demonstrations. Okay. Okay. Why not? Good. Yes. Absolutely. Do they have many roses outside the courthouse? Oh, they've, they've got about, um, uh, about 30 or 40, but... Um, they've got some good weeping roses and a fantastic climber of crepuscule up okay. on the brick wall, which has really been fantastic over the years. Right. And um, So people will get an opportunity to see how to prune weeping roses, climbing roses, yes. and your standard sort of rose yeah, bush. and the bushes. Yeah. Um, which is actually a great thing because people often see how to prune bush roses, but when it yeah. comes to climbers and weepers and things, mm. they often get missed out on. Yes. So that's a great opportunity. We'll be looking at the full gamut. Good, Stephen, the full gamut. Have you ever heard that word before? Yes, absolutely. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Good on you. Okay, we'll go to our next caller, and we have Thomas in Albert Park. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, Graham. Good morning, Stephen. Um, Graham, I've got a friend of mine who's got a vineyard in uh, Red Hill, 
and she has roses planted at the end of the rows yes. of the vines. But the birds keep attacking them. Right. So are there any roses that you can put in that may have scent that repel the birds? Or is this fairy tale stuff? Fairy tale stuff. No, not really. What are the birds? Are they, they, are they cockies? I think so. But yes. I, yeah, there'll be I some paradox cocky probably yes. yeah. taking the yeah. tops out. Now, I've got a question, Graham, about this. I seem to notice when people are having trouble with their roses getting bitten off by the parrots and cockies that it's the roses that have the reddish new growth that mm-hmm. tend to be more targeted than the roses that have green new growth. Am mm. I imagining it or do you think that's true? No, your, your report's pretty consistent yeah. with what a lot of people say to me. Yeah. And I believe it has to do with the sap in the red yeah. that comes in the rose. Yeah. And so if you planted ones that only get green new growth, you might be a little better off, yeah. maybe. I think that I think that that's worth doing some experimenting with. Yeah, and yeah. I think some of the old world and species roses are less prone to bird attack than the modern bush and hybrid teas and floribundas and things. Mm, I I don't know about that. Yeah, because no. uh, I've certainly seen lots of damage on you know modern roses, but you mm. don't tend to see so much on the species things. Mm. They don't. They I think they're thinner and harder and and you know not as sappy. So maybe they'd work better. But mm. then you don't always get as you don't get the recurrent flowering forms and you don't get mm. as high a scent with some of the old species roses. No. So, um, yeah, I'd just go for green-stemmed ones. Might be the only way to go. Give, give the green-stemmed roses a trial. Thank you, Graham. Uh, Beth, look, I'll send Catherine up to Silky Farm and she can check it. <laughs> <laughs> <That'd be laughs> you'll need to tell her which varieties the, are likely to be uh, that way. Red Hill South. Yeah. Well, thanks for your help. Well, you, your challenge also is that there are varieties now that that do uh, go from the green to the dark colours or yeah. will go from the dark colour oh, in the stem to the stem green. To yeah. the green. Yeah. So um, we, we need to be confident about that. Mm. Yes. Thank you, Graham. Okay. okay. Good on yeah. you, Thomas. Bye. Bye. The rose questions are coming in thick and fast they this morning. They are, aren't they? Yes, yes. Next up we have our good friend Ken in Sunshine. Good, good morning, morning, Ken. Good morning and good morning to everyone. You're absolutely fantastic. Well, yeah, thank got you a for rose that question too. <laughs> you really are. Look, we've got roses. We've got bush roses, right. and they are in full bloom. Right. Well, that's not a problem. <laughs> no, of course not. In the middle of winter. The thing is, the problem is when do we prune them? Yeah, you can you can start pruning them now. I'll get me. I'll get. <laughs> yes, you have to take the flowers off. Yes. Yeah, put them inside and enjoy them. Yeah, yeah at some point you've got to do the pruning. So mm. if the roses but are still what's flowering. The latest, what's the latest? Because some of them are just about, a couple of them are just about to bloom. Mm. Oh, no, you can wait till the, even to the end of August. But yes. yes. Oh, That's I okay. thought it was. No, 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 it's not absolutely essential. No, no, it's not one of those things that you have to do on the first Thursday of the month or whatever. It's, you know, <laughs> there's a little bit of leeway involved in rose pruning. Mm. To be quite honest, I think if you leave your rose pruning until later in August, mm. for people who aren't confident at pruning roses, it's so much easier because the roses are already shooting yeah. Yeah, and you they'll the tell you exactly where from. to prune to. Yeah. So well, I, I, I think there's a lot of merit in leaving it for a little while. Ken? I will. Mm. And thank you very, very much. What a delightful program. You know, as I as I say, you're my church every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Good thank on you. you. Thanks, Bye. Ken. Bye. Ah, we are running through until 9.15, so if anyone out there would like to quickly jump on the line and give us a call, that number is 9. 9- 
419-0155. Stephen, you look as though you've got something you're wanting to say. No, no, no? I just have some more plants to fill in with if, we, if we've, oh, if we've okay. got time. Oh, okay. We'll go for it um, while we're waiting. I mean, there's always something I can say, as people know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I've just got a couple of other plants that I thought were rather fun and interesting that Good. maybe people would like to consider. Um, one is one of the Arbutuses, the strawberry trees. Now, the Irish strawberry tree is well-known, Arbutus yes. unido, with its red, squishy fruit and its little white bell flowers, and, and, and it's tough and hardy. And, in fact, in some areas it's becoming weedy. So there are some issues with it. But right. it's as tough as they come. I mean, it'll grow in really dreadful, rocky soils and cope with dry conditions and what have you, uh, as do the other species in the genus and the other forms, which don't tend to have the same potential as weediness. So right. uh, they are well worth looking out for. And the advantage of the other ones is that Arbutus unido can get quite an elegant trunk as it ages, but it has fairly ordinary, slightly uh, rough bark, and there's nothing particularly exciting about it. But some of the other forms have beautiful trunks, so they're well worth looking out for, for their trunks. And the one I bought in this morning is the hybrid strawberry tree, and it's a cross between the Irish one and the Grecian one. So it's called uh, Arbutus andracnoides, um, and it gets white flowers at this time of the year, which the honey eaters again love. Mm. Uh, it's basically sterile, so it virtually rarely produces any fruit. Okay. Uh, and when you do get them, they're small, wizened up things that I don't think have any seed in them anyway. Um, it has good, attractive, uh, leathery foliage. And its trunks have dark brown, shaggy bark that peels off to expose sort of greenish white bark underneath. Oh, okay. So, and, and the trunks never grow straight. They sort of, you'll get multiple trunks and they curve and they twist and they bend and all that sort of thing. So, they have this lovely sinuous effect from the trunks. Uh, and there's a whole range of species around uh, the Northern Hemisphere mainly uh, that you just don't see here. I mean, when Craig and I were in the Canary Islands a few weeks ago, there's Arbutus canariensis, which grows in the Canary Islands, obviously. Uh, and it has the most beautiful, soft, caramel coloured trunks mm. just gorgeous and we saw quite a number of them in a while and as the bark ages it goes almost um almost clarity colored and then it peels off to show the pale cinnamon bark underneath wow again. Uh, there's a gorgeous one from north america called the madrone tree which has exquisite bark so the arbutuses are well worth looking out for some of the other species are hard to find because uh, they're not that easy to propagate i struggle with them a bit as do most of the growers trying to get quantities going for sale uh, but they're definitely worth looking out for mm -hmm. so either the canary island one the hybrid one the grecian one the North American ones or the Mexican one, uh, they all have stunning bark and they're all beautiful trees if you can get a young tree from somewhere. And, you know, five, six metres perhaps. Yeah. And if anybody's up in Yakandanda, of all places, um, there is a Canariensis one growing in the Yakandanda Cemetery. And it's, I think, the only tree in the cemetery. It's right on the front boundary. How it ended up there, I've no idea. Uh, it's on the National Tree Register. It's a really important specimen. And it is stunning. So if you're up in Yakandanda uh, doing the touristy thing up there, don't forget to go and visit the cemetery of yeah. all places. Uh, Do I a mean, cemetery crawl. Yeah, well, I actually I find country cemeteries fascinating. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. 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 and uh, the Yakandanda one, the last time I was there, which was several years ago, still had lots of those beautiful glass domes with the um, porcelain flowers oh, underneath yes. it. Mm. So the vandals hadn't got in and smashed them all. Oh, good. Uh, and so they were still sitting on, on tops of graves and things, and mm. they'd probably been there for 50 or 80 years or something. But this... Arbutus is down in the bottom edge of the of the cemetery, and it is incredible. 
right. So, yeah, so visit Yak and Dander Cemetery. Absolutely. So Arbutuses, I think they're underrated and hopefully we will get more and more of them planted into gardens in due course because as global warming um, uh, kicks in and we get hotter and hotter summers, the Arbutuses come from very hot, dry climates and they don't like uh, summer rain particularly at all. Uh, so once they're established in the garden, they look after themselves. Mm. So they are a very appropriate tree if you can get them uh, and are looking for something that you're not going to have to put a lot of time and effort into. Excellent. So think of them. Okay. And uh, Before you go on to the next plant, yeah. um, we've had a, a listener to string in to say that uh, hollyhocks planted between uh, roses help deter cockatoos. Hmm. I'm not suppose. quite sure why. It might just be a visual thing where they're not mm. so – the roses aren't so obvious because yes. I can't see why a hollyhock mm. per se is going to to deter a cockatoo. I yes. mean, nothing deters a cockatoo. Window frames don't deter a cockatoo. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> so I wonder whether it's just the fact that it disguises the roses a wee bit. Maybe. I've always thought about hollyhocks and I've always been concerned about what people talk about as the bonking beetles and the smell from the bonking beetles might deter them. I'm not sure. (laughs) Of course, hollyhocks also have the other issue that in some areas, particularly with high humidity, they're dreadfully rust prone. Yes. Yes. So you get that dreadful rust all over them. I've I've given up trying to grow hollyhocks in Mm. our garden because Mm. the rust just gets in and makes them look absolutely dreadful. Mm. And and I'm not really prepared to – well, I don't have the time to fiddle, so I'm not prepared to sort of – spend a lot of time with fungicides and things, and I don't mm. approve of most of them anyway. Um, so it's easier not to grow hollyhocks. Yeah. But in areas where you have an alkaline soil and a reasonably sort of Mediterranean-style climate, hollyhocks can be fantastic. Mm. Uh, and they're certainly statuesque and beautiful in flower. Oh, yes. Um, but I don't know why they specifically would deter cockatoos. So I wonder whether it's just the fact that they visually break up the effect of the rose bush that they're growing next to mm. and the cockies don't notice the roses so easily maybe mm. maybe it seems the only logical explanation i can think of yes yeah so yeah. there you go okay goodness me oh well All it's right. good to have that sort of input from absolutely yeah. yes. and yeah. people can take it as they wish and have well, a crack I, at it I, if I they guess want and... anything that's going to be more attractive to the cockatoos than the roses are mm. is okay. going to deter them for a while isn't it while mm. they Ripped to shreds, Something whatever else, you, yeah. you put in. I have to say, one of the advantages of the fact that cockatoos rip thing to shred, things to shreds is that they've actually worked out pine cones over the last 15 to 20 mm. years. Mm. And so now uh, there's hardly a pine tree that doesn't get its cones ripped to pieces and the seeds eaten out of it uh, by the cockatoos, which is probably a disadvantage if you're growing pine nuts. I can't imagine ever getting a crop of those in this country now. But certainly it's having an impact on the weediness of yes, Pinus radiata yes, yes. because fewer seeds are hitting the ground to take root. Um, but for those of us who would like to grow some of the rarer pines from seed, it's making it almost impossible to get hold of seed. Uh, so, um, yeah, so the cockies love the pine cones mm. and they're very adept at ripping them to bits and oh, getting yeah, the seeds out. Good. There especially, you go. Especially the black cockatoos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they got Beaks that rip into anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're amazing, and yet they're not vandalistic like no, the, like the sulphur crested. Genteel, aren't they? Yeah, they yeah. go out and they do their thing in the wild, yeah. but they don't come in and rip your house to bits yes. and, and what have you, like the sulphur crested yes. do. So yes, I have a great soft spot for the the black cockies. I think mm. they're fantastic birds, mm. and we get little flocks of them around our area, yeah. and you'll see them pulling the hakea nuts to bits or the pine cones to bits and mm. what have you, and having a lovely old time. Yeah, they're great. Good. On to the other plant. Yeah, well, I've got another one here, which is slightly offbeat type of plant that I think oh, looks lovely at this time of year. It's actually an ulnus, as in like an evergreen alder. Okay. But it's not the evergreen alder. No. Uh, it's one of the other species. <clears throat> uh, 
I don't really see the place for an evergreen alder unless it's out in somebody's damp paddock somewhere. But, you know, they're not garden plants. They're big. They're not particularly attractive. They're not really evergreen or deciduous, so they can't make up their mind. And I don't like them particularly. But some of the other ulnuses are really worth growing, particularly if you do have somewhere on the side of a dam or you've got a damp spot down the bottom of the garden and you're looking for a tree that will grow in those sort of conditions. They don't care about clay soils. They just need a bit of summer moisture. So if you've got a high water table or you've got a damp spot, then some of the ulnuses could be worth sort of revisiting. And this one is a form of ulnus incana, which is one of the European alders. It has a roundish leaf that's a bit like an elm leaf. Okay. It's a form called aurea, and when its leaves come out in the spring, they're almost gold. They tend to green as the summer goes on, but they're always a very pale green, so Mm. they stand out really nicely. And then it goes yellow in the autumn before the leaves shed. When the leaves have shed, the bare twigs in the the winter have got a slightly apricot-y colour about them, and then they get these beautiful, soft... I'm not even quite sure how to describe these catkins. They're they're sort of soft, apricot-y, creamy sort of colours. I don't know how to really explain them. But they hang in great swathes all over the tree at this time of the year. And I think it's a charming plant. Mm. Uh, it's an upright small tree. It'll, it'll probably grow to about four or five metres tall by about three metres wide. Okay. So it's not a great big thing. But like the, the rest of the family, it does like a moist aspect. So it would be better for those of you who've got a damp spot somewhere to, to consider it. Um, but it would be small enough to fit into a smaller suburban garden. It doesn't have as vigorous a root system as the evergreen alder. Um, and I think it's charming. Oh, beautiful. Lovely thing. I could see it being quite pretty as a cut thing for, yes. for the house. Yes. Uh, so when it's got its catkins all over it. Uh, and and it, again, um, in that form, without the leaves, it looks very Japanese, yeah, it's very, very oriental. Yeah, it very does oriental. look oriental. Yes. Uh, and, of course, I'm in a healthy environment because it's growing lichen on the branches as well. Yeah. Uh, which is another thing that gets me annoyed sometimes when people say, how do you get rid of lichen? Oh, I don't. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I get very yeah. annoyed with that because they think it's something that's feeding off the tree and it's yeah, not. It no. shows up good, clean air. It does, yeah. yes. You can only grow lichens where you haven't got madly bad air pollution. So, uh, yeah, so Ulnus incana aurea. The golden older, and I think it's a lovely plant. It is, and it's stunning. older as in A L D E R, not older as in E L D E R, which is a different group of plants altogether. Yep. But yeah, great little thing, and you you just don't see it around. No. Uh, so it's an obscure little tree. I haven't got any available at the moment, but I did do some cuttings this year because it's one of those things that I'd sort of ignored and forgotten about for a few years, um, and. Mine looked so good last winter, I thought, oh, God, why aren't I growing that again? So I've started. So I will have the the golden older for sale in due course. And there are people, you know, we talk about, you know, the climate drying and all that sort of thing, but there will always be damp spots in some people's gardens or lakes or dams or whatever that they want to have something pretty growing around them. Yes. Uh, Dare I say the end of some of those slightly dysfunctional septic lines in country gardens that Mm. might be a useful thing at the end of the line. Uh, And... um, I just think it's such a pretty and elegant and comparatively small tree, so oh, it's we should be looking at it again. Yeah. Don't you I, – I really love plants that have catkins. Oh, yeah. There's something There's about something it. very yeah. special about catkins. Yeah. Well, I've got several – I've got 
two, I've several two. I've got two olders in the garden at home, two different species. They both get beautiful catkins on mm. them. Uh, of course, the old garrier is a well-known plant for its lovely catkins. I love the catkins on birches and hazelnuts and, you know, all those plants that do produce that catkiny type flower. Um, uh, there's just something really, I don't know, cute about them. They, they, they sort of remind me of... Wind in the willows and uh, and childhood things. There's, yeah, there's or some, waterfalls. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, so there's something just... really, really appealing about catkinning plants. So, yes. And the olders do it quite well. The other one I've got in the garden at home, it's not in flower yet, but if I remember next time I'm down, hopefully it will be, uh, it's one of the South American ones and it has huge big leaves on it, big sort of leaves probably about four or five inches in diameter in the old measurements, one called Ulnus incuminata, and its catkins are about, five or six inches long. Oh, fantastic. And for a few weeks in the late winter, just before it breaks into leaf, it looks fantastic. And it's a, it's a biggish tree. Mine's got a trunk on it probably about two feet in diameter now and it's it's probably seven or eight metres tall and still going. Um, so it's probably not a tree for a small garden and it certainly has a vigorous root system. Mm. But if I wanted something down along a drainage ditch in a farm property or something like that, it could be, be fantastic. It would be brilliant. And mm. lovely tree. Yep. Lovely tree. Yep. Okay, well, we have run out of time for yet another week. You have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Um, a big thank you to the team, to both Stephen Ryan and Graham Sargent, and also a big thank you to Jenny, who's been handling all the phone calls this morning. And, uh, of course, uh, as usual, we'll, we'll be back again next week at uh, 7.30. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.